Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome to episode 80. This time, Pippin and I will be going over updates on what we've been up to. And if we have any extra time, we're going to answer a couple of listener questions. Pippin, you like to start us off? What what have you been up to, man? Sure. So it's been a while. It's been at least a month since our last episode. Uh, And I believe it's been three to four months since we we last gave updates. So there's a number of things that we've been working on. Um, So I'll start off the top. First, this whole year, 2017 really, we decided that we're going to focus a lot more on two areas of the business. Uh, and this is this is largely what I'm working on and what a couple of my team members are working on with me. And that is business growth and polishing all of the products. So we have a habit of working very fast, pushing out a lot of new things, pushing out updates a lot. We are going to rein that back a little bit and focus primarily on polishing things. We want to make things a lot smoother. We want to make th- things work better for people. We want to make the onboarding better. So there's a lot of there's a lot of focus in that area, uh, and that's going to be throughout the rest of the year as well. Um, there are some initial results coming out of that already. And then the other one is focusing on business growth, and we're really starting to do a marketing push for our products, which is something that we've never really done before. Uh, I mean, I like to tell people that I'm a terrible marketer, which is completely true. Uh, so we are trying to actually take a new look at how we can utilize um, a really good marketing effort for the company. And then there's there's two little things that, that we've done recently that have had some pretty interesting results. First one is I played with retargeting ads for the first time. I don't know why it took me so long to play with them because it took about five minutes to set up and the results are pretty fascinating. Um, if you haven't done it I would and you have a product, I would definitely recommend at least testing them out. Are you using Facebook's retargeting or are you using a perfect audience? We are using or? perfect audience. Okay, yeah. AdRoll Ad roll is the one we use, but uh, it's very similar. I've tried perfect audience and AdRoll and perfect audience are almost the same. So, Yeah, that was my understanding as well. And I, I chose perfect audience just purely based on a recommendation from somebody else. So the biggest issue that we've had with it so far is being able to accurately determine how much revenue does it actually generate. So, because <laughs> here's the problem. Let's say that you serve a thousand impressions of your ads and that generates $500 in sales. And then you spend $100. Okay, so you have a five to one ROI. Well, that's awesome. But did you actually make $500 because of the retargeting ads? Or did some of that revenue come from customers that were going to purchase anyway, but just happened to see the ads somewhere in between? So this is something that we're trying to come up with a good way of measuring. And right now, it's we're doing it through an experiment of turning the ads on, turning them off, turning them on, turning them off, turning them on, turning them off for like a week or two at a time. Um, so on for a week, off for a week, on for a week. And then over time, be able to look at, look at a graph and see, okay, are there definite spikes when the ads are on versus off? If that's the case, Perfect. That's the best way, what you just mentioned, that's the best way to test if any any ads that you're running are working, but you have to do, that's all you can do. You can't change your website at that time, like you can't change any, you know what I mean? Because if anything else changes, then you're not, like it's not a controlled experiment, right? Like 
right. other things could be though affected. even with with some changes if you do it long enough like let's say that you do you alternate weeks for a year at a time if it is a significant result that should be pretty clear over the course of a year even if there are other changes with it but it's 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 a long game. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the magnitude of those changes, though. Too, I think. Like, so like our first week of retargeting, we had, according to Perfect Audience, we had a two thousand percent ROI, which was awesome. But we're like, is this actually accurate? I'm not really sure. Uh, but anyway, that's been one thing that we've been having fun with. And the other one is we recently started A/B testing with Google Optimize. Um, Optimize is a new product from Google. I think it's new in the last like six-ish months, at least in terms of like a public product. And it is stellar. If you want to go set up an A-B test on your site, go check out optimize.google.com. It is super easy to set up um, and works incredibly well so far. It's also super tightly integrated with Google Analytics, which makes it even better. Um, so that's been a pretty fun little project. Very cool. All right. So beyond that, there's one big thing um, that we worked on over the last four months, uh, and this is a price increase. We, we've talked about this a couple of times. I know we've mentioned in previous episodes. In March, I published a big blog post on a reflection of our price increase for EDD. So our price increase for EDD went live on December 12th. And then we had a price increase for Affiliate WP and Restrict Content Pro that went live on March 1. So I'm not going to talk too much in depth about that because we could, I could easily talk for an hour or more on it. So if this interests you, you should go check out the blog post, which is linked in the show notes. But I want to give you a couple or more like 10 quick stats on how this has affected our three products. So since December 12, the support tickets, the number of tickets submitted to EDD, have gone down 3%. Not a huge change. However, the number of tickets handled per day, so this is like the number of tickets you reply to, that you close, that you open, tickets are open, closed, et cetera, has, been, has decreased by 46%. The number of customers that we interact with has gone down by 36%. The number of tickets that we touch per day has gone down 47%. And our revenue for EDD is up 18 plus percent in that time period. So that was the ultimate goal here was to decrease our support tickets and raise our revenue. At minimum, decrease support and keep revenue steady. And it's been a pretty stellar result so far. Affiliate WP and Restrict Content Pro had some similar results. Uh, now, these ones have not been live quite as long. So they, Affiliate WP and Restrict Content Pro had their price change go live on March 1. They also had a much less drastic price change. So EDD, for example, had some pretty significant increases in price. The other two plugins uh, was a flat $50 increase across the board, and that was it. But here's the quick stats. For Affiliate WP, tickets submitted has gone down 5%. The number of customers that we interact with, and by customer interactions, that's, that is purely in a support capacity, um, has gone down 8%. The number of tickets that we interact with per day has gone down 5%. And our revenue is up 56.8%. For Restricted Content Pro, the number of tickets submitted is down 1%. The number of tickets that we interact with in support is down 
The number of tickets submitted per day has not changed, but our revenue is up 32.6%. So those are the quick stats. Um, it really comes down to a pretty, at least for EDD, a very significant decrease in support with an 18% increase in revenue. Affiliate WP, a small decrease in support, but a 56% increase in revenue. And RCP, a small decrease in support and an increase in revenue of 32%. So that's the cause, that's the effect of our price change. Uh, and you can read more about that on the blog post that I published, which will be in the show notes. It's been a pretty, pretty interesting last couple of months because of it. It's something that I would definitely recommend um, business owners consider. I think we need to be careful though. Like we don't, we don't just increase prices just to increase prices. Like there's a, there's a reason for it. So for example, our reason was was support was too much of a burden. And we had done everything that we could think of. We had attacked it from every angle to do, decrease that burden. Raising prices was the last one that we went with. And it was very, very effective. Yeah, sure. Um, surely so another if, reason to increase prices is that, I mean, you guys have been iterating on all of your stuff for how many years without changing the price? <laughs> Yeah, you know, a lot. Um, well, and, and that that's an important point. Um, I mean, we we would get comments from from people that say, "Look, this is not this thing is way too good for the price that it's at," and and it's and it's because of that iteration because we had we had built something very simple early on, and now it was something very powerful over after three to four years, uh, and so with that does eventually should come a natural change or progression in in price. Um, and so that's a, we we took a little too long to get to it, and so when we did get to it, it was a little more drastic than I think some people expected. But it's been a pretty positive experience so far. Uh, if you if you own a product or a business of any kind, uh, go check out the blog post. And if you have any thoughts um, or reactions to to that price increase or anything that you've done or anything else you've heard, I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and then I have four other quick little updates that I'm going to give, uh, and then. Brad, I would love to hear what you've been up to. So um, in the EDD world, uh, there's a bit of news for us. We, um, as of a couple days ago, we acquired a large set of EDD add-ons from a, a developer that has been around in the ecosystem for a long time. Uh, we, we actually bought seven of his plugins from him and have brought them into the company so that they are now owned, maintained, supported, and developed 100% by our team. Um, these are add-ons that have been pretty instrumental in a lot of EDD's presence and growth over the last four years, but unfortunately, due to various obligations, have not been able to have some of the attention that, that they could really use. And so we've brought them into, uh, into our team, and so we're hoping to breathe a bunch of new life into them. And we're pretty excited to see, see what comes out of those. And then uh, we recently hired Kyle Maurer, joined us full-time for uh, helping out with EDD support, marketing, and various other things that we throw at him. Uh, he's actually been working with us for about two years now, but he in a part-time capacity, just in his spare time, his evenings, his weekends, and he agreed to come on with us full-time uh, about a month ago, which has been pretty exciting. And then we also brought on a new uh, person for Philly WP, uh, Ginger Coolidge, who has been around the, the WordPress and Genesis community for a long time, has come on to help us out with affiliate WP support. Uh, and she'd actually been working with us part-time since December, but uh, um, about a month ago also decided to come on with us full-time. Uh, and, and that's been awesome so far. 
that's what we've been up to. Brad, how about you? What have you and your team been working on? You guys are always releasing new things. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say in the last four months, I've spent about 20% of my time on hiring. <laughs> I track my time and uh, and it's pretty much, it's exactly 19%. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's pretty crazy. I, could, I couldn't believe it, actually. I thought I was making a mistake. Um, but... The results of that have been excellent. Uh, so we hired a new developer to work on uh, WP Offload S3. So we've, we have three developers on that team. We also hired a marketing manager. So this is the first non-developer hire that, that we've had. Um, so that's, um, that's been excellent as well. We actually have a developer on trial right now as well. And the idea there is that they would put in uh, 20 hours a week to work on our site, which is pretty neglected because all the, all the other developers work on the products. And it's, it's hard to justify stealing away their time from working on the products to work on our site. Um, but sometimes it has to be done, right? <laughs> So that, that's Evan Matson is our developer on Offload S3, or, and uh, Liz Lockhart is our new marketing manager. So it's pretty pretty exciting. Uh, the It's a huge change for us to have someone helping us out with marketing, because um, that's an area that I've, it, that's been on my plate, solely on my plate, and I've really been dropping the ball with it. Um, so yeah, that sounds all too familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's how it is. Um, I mean, when you're the founder, you have so many different hats. I mean, you can only wear one for so long at a time, right? Um, and usually the hats that you don't like to wear, like those are usually the ones that you wear the least often. So it, for me, that was marketing. <laughs> so, um, How did you go about um, finding Liz? So you're very much a developer. I'm very much a developer. How did you, so one of the, one of the things I've always told myself about why it took me so long to really like get a hard look at marketing, whether it's with a team member or me, is that I have no idea what a good marketer is. I don't know how to hire that person. I don't know how to find that person. So let me ask you how you did it. Uh, it was a very difficult process. I felt like I was, you know, stumbling around in the dark. That's what it felt like. So uh, I'm a hundred percent on board with, with every, everything you just said. Like the reason I've put it off for so long is because it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> like I don't know how to hire that person. And so I never did even try, right? Um, but once I wrote, sat down and like thought about what they would do and and define the role, it, it just made, it made most, so much sense. Like, because you have a list of like, this is what you're looking for. This is the type of person that you need for this role. Um, so it just, it made it a lot easier. Um, now, I mean, I'm not gonna say that it was super easy. Oh, I, you know, just went out and Liz just showed up and it was a perfect match. Like, you know, I went through like 300 applications and and like a really time consuming um, process to, to, to find Liz. So it, it, was, it was tough. <laughs> it was tough, I guess. Is the is the answer well cool i'm i'm excited to hear how that works out yeah it's already we're already seeing awesome stuff so it's it's been wow that's it's been great. Going great um 
So we've also been working on MergeBot in the last four months. Uh, we've had uh, some minor releases here and there and kind of just knocking down some of the barriers that have been in place since we launched the beta. Just some limitations that we decided, you know, you know what, let's just get this out there, uh, even though these, these limitations are, are in place. Um, so we've knocked down pretty much all of them now. And so we're getting really close to being able to launch. Uh, we're closing off the beta, so we're not, not accepting any new beta uh, customers right now. The one thing about the, the MergeBot beta, I'll say, is that it was, it's, the feedback has been pretty light. Like, we haven't gotten a lot of, like, feedback where we're like, oh, yeah, we should, you know, we definitely have to do that. Like, there, there hasn't been surprises, I guess. And, and the usage from our customers hasn't been, you know, through the roof. Like on a day-to-day -day basis, getting like one or two customers using using the app. So I'm hoping when we launch it, uh, we start to get more feedback. We start to see more usage and, and that kind of thing, so that we can start to refine refine it more and and deal with the problems that people are having. So that definitely sounds like one of those cases where you you pretty much just have to launch it if you ever want to to really start learning about what works well, what doesn't, because you have to get more users on yes, it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's kind of the stage we're in right now. So the next step there is just to define the marketing site, uh, clean up a few things with our registration process, and, you know, just minor stuff um, and mar and marketing stuff. That's kind of the, the big one. The big blocker right now is just writing copy <laughs> and stuff, you know. We've released WP Offload S3 1.4, and uh, that was uh, that gave people the ability to remove all the files on S3 that they had offloaded if they wanted to wipe them off S3. Uh, but and also if you um, if you decided I don't want any of the files on my server anymore, there was a tool. There's now a tool in it to wipe out all the files that have already been offloaded to S3 from your server to free up disk space and whatever. And then Offload S3 1.5 is just about ready to go as well. So that, that one's going to have the ability to move attachments to a new, another bucket. So when I say attachments, I, I mean media library files. Um, so like when you change a bucket right now in Offload S3, it just changes the setting and then any new media that's uploaded goes into the new bucket but all like all the old media just stays in the old bucket <laughs> so so anyway the new the new version will prompt you and say do you want to move all your existing uh media to the new bucket or just leave it where where it is um cool yeah i imagine for people that do a lot of file organization it's going to be something they're going to love yeah so one of the use cases is actually if you're um if you're working in a staging environment and need to move move that staging environment to production, you might change the name of your bucket in in that um, in that case. We've we've had a few people request request it for that reason. So yeah, so there's that. And then Migrate DB Pro 1.5 is is uh, getting close. It's uh, going into testing, and the big feature there will be to import an SQL file. So um, yeah, so you could. And is that is that just any SQL file, or is that one that you supplied by WP Micro Pro? Any SQL file, any SQL file. But 
if you do use MigrateDB Pro to export the SQL file, you get some extra benefits because we add some metadata to that to the, the header of that file that we can read and and it helps with like showing. Okay, so walk walk problems. me through how that that works. Do you you upload a file and then do you just say I want to import it into the into this database? Are there controls to say I want to import these columns or only rows that match this? What does that feature look yeah. like? Yeah, once the file is uploaded, it reads the header and then based on that information, it shows you different controls. Um, for example, you could exclude certain tables from importing. You can uh, exclude certain uh, post types from being imported. There's all kinds of different controls. Um, can you do uh, search and replace during import? Yeah, yeah exactly. You nice. can do search and replace as well on that file. Um, so yeah, it's pretty much all the controls. I'm not going to say all the controls. There's some that we can't support for imports, but most of the controls that you are familiar with with MigrateDB Pro are going to be available for the import as well. That's something that's been that I've personally been rejecting because <laughs> uh, I, I felt like it was. Like, why do you need that? Why do you need to import SQL files? Like, if you've got push and pull, like, you, why do you need that? But there's there's a bunch of reasons why people need it. And so, yeah, I've I've admitted that I, I'm wrong. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely see the use for yeah. it. The other thing is conferences. I, I went to a couple of conferences in the last four months. I went to Pressnomics. I went to Big Snow Tiny Conf in Vermont. Um, microconf in uh, Vegas, and uh, and then this June I'm headed to WordCamp Europe in Paris as well, and uh, my wife and I are going to travel for a week afterwards. Uh, we've never neither one of us have hey, been. If you're gonna if you're gonna fly across the ocean, you might as well go enjoy it for a few extra days. Yeah, exactly. And you know, my wife and I haven't traveled uh, since over a year, uh, so and we haven't done. France, so why not, right? Like, well, yeah, well. sounds worth it to me. We were uh, planning to originally go to WordCamp Europe, and then just decided it wasn't in the books this year, and decided to take a smaller trip just up into the mountains, a few hours away from us. Nice, but still looks like a whole lot of fun. Yeah, cool. You went, so you are at Pressnomics. What other conferences yep. have you been to in the last uh, four months? Uh, there was I went to WordCamp Kansas City just two week two weeks ago. Uh, so that that one's kind of my local WordCamp. That's just about three hours away from me. It's the closest one that I have. Um, it's kind of my home WordCamp too. It's the it's the first one I ever went to when I was first getting into going to WordCamps. Uh, and then, yeah, I think that's really the only one I went because it was Pressnomics and the WordCamp Kansas City. Um, and then I've got one coming up in August, I believe. And then perhaps one in October, and that's pretty much it. I'm taking the, the summer pretty light. Yeah, nice. Yeah, same same here. I think we're doing a company retreat in August. I think and that's it besides Paris for us. So great. Yeah. Should we answer a couple questions? Yeah, I think we've got time for at least a couple of them. All right. Um, okay, I'll read the first one. Uh, it's from Josh uh, Ebby. He says, I was wondering if you guys might be able to talk about the proper way to give attribution when borrowing GPL licensed code. For example, say I wanted to start a database base class, 
but rather than starting from scratch, I want to copy Pippin's EDDDB class into the project and rename it. What all should be in the header of the file to give Pippin proper credit for his work? Thanks. Hmm. What do you think, Pippin? It's your class. What do you say? <laughs> so I, I think it it largely depends on like are you are you basically forking um, a class? Are you forking one file? Are you forking an entire project? So if you fork an entire project, for example, there's generally a couple of um, rules. Number one is that you should leave copyrights intact. Uh, and then two is that you should try to give you should give attribution, uh, and and whether that is in the code itself, or on on your product page, on your project page, or wherever it is, in some form or other, give attribution. Uh, I don't believe attribution is in any way legally required. It's more of just the nice thing to do. Um, if so, with with Josh's example of the EDDDB class. For that, what I would what I would recommend is number one, copy it, rename it, make any adjustments to it that you want, uh, and then in the in the header, just you could just say inspired by, forked from, based on, and then give the URL to the GitHub project for the EDD class. Yeah, and I would think that's more than sufficient. Yeah, what what I the way I would think about this is like if you were seeing this code for the first time as a developer. What would you want to know about it? Like, what would you want to know where it came from and maybe check out the original project? I think most developers would like to know that information, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it makes sense. I think it's a great way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, I think it makes sense. An another way um, is, is think about if, if as a developer that builds open source projects, put yourself into a scenario where you stumble in, onto somebody else's code and realize that it's yours. Was based on your code, so this is this has actually happened to me a couple of times, um, and so stumble on it and then think, hey, that's my code. That's cool because they they used what I what I wrote and what I released as open source, and hopefully they made it better. And if and at, at minimum they used it within their project. So put yourself in that scenario and think, what would you like to see? It's in in my case, it's really nice to see attribution. It's not something that you would you should get mad at if they don't give it to you, but it is a nice courtesy. It's a nice hat tip to whoever worked on it last time. Yeah. Yeah, I could just picture you like reading that code. You're like, oh, I like this guy's style. It's this guy. Wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so sometimes it happens on code that you're really not proud of, oh, which yeah. is then kind of funny because you're like, man, this code is not good. Oh crap, it's and mine. Oh crap. <laughs> I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, happens. Yeah, that's happened too. So, and one other note, one other note I'll make on this um, is about trademarks because uh, there's often confusion between ah, GPLs and, and, and trademarks. So, if you fork some code or a project and it has a UI and there's trademarks in that UI, you have to take out the trademarked stuff, right? So, for example, I think. CentOS, the uh, flavor of Linux, like they, they had to strip out all of the Red Hat Enterprise Linux stuff when they forked Red Hat Enterprise Linux because they couldn't just distribute Red Hat Enterprise Linux and then people as CentOS, but then when people booted it up, it said Red Hat Enterprise Linux everywhere, right? Because that, that would be a, a violation of the, the Red Hat trademark. 
That's a weird. That's probably a bad example because Red Hat has purchased, like they bought out CentOS <laughs> at, at at some point. You know, whenever they bought them out, then it would have been fine for for CentOS to use Red Hat's trademarks. But I think I think that you guys do you get the idea, Pippin? Does that make any sense? What I absolutely. Just said? Okay. So since we since the example given was the EDD DB class, which is a class used inside of Easy Digital Downloads, EDD itself is not trademarked, but the name Easy Digital Downloads is trademarked and we own the trademark to that. So if you were to fork something that has Easy Digital Downloads in the name, you would have to change that name. All right. I think we got time for one more. Uh, and this one also comes from, from Josh Ebby. And, and he asks, how important is it to have a blank index.php file in every directory within your plugin? The idea is that it, it will prevent someone getting a directory listing. Is that correct? Should I try to ensure every single directory has such a file? Yes. Brad? Interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, so if you're, you're in complete control of your server and you don't envision your project going anywhere other than your server, then I would say no, it's not necessary at all. Because as long as you control um, your ser web server config files and you're never going to enable directory listings and you're confident of that, then I don't see the point of, of adding index.php files to a bunch of directories uh, to avoid you know, people spying on your directory listing. But for a project like WordPress, where who knows what server configuration it's going to be installed on. I think it's absolutely necessary, right? As a, like, why wouldn't you take that extra security precaution to avoid um, people spying on directory indexes? Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on it. I would agree completely. Uh, I, would, I would like to expand on it a little bit as well. There's another very similar practice that a lot of people use uh, especially inside of plugins and themes. And that is at the top of every single PHP file of adding something like, if not defined, apps path exit, with the idea being that you are trying to prevent direct access to your PHP files. So what that does is it, if, it, if somebody tries to load that PHP file directly into the browser via URL, via the URL or through a curl command or anything like that, uh, it will actually kill execution of the file instead of allowing them to potentially exploit, if, like if there was a weakness inside of the file, it just blocks it completely because if you access that file directly, WordPress itself hasn't loaded and so the abs path constant isn't gonna be defined. Um, and that's a pretty similar tactic. I've heard one good argument against doing this. Um, and I don't actually think it's really an argument against it, it's more of a cautionary tale. So this came up in a discussion I don't know, a year, two years ago, uh, and I, I have no idea who it was with, but I just remember it happening. And they were actually advocating against putting in blank index.php files and advocating against doing like an abs path defined check at the top of their PHP files. Their reason being is that it was a false sense of security. So basically there, there was the, the, the claim that when people do that, a lot of people who are maybe not as... Uh, well-rounded as a developer, or maybe not as familiar with how security vulnerabilities work, they put those in and think, oh, well, that's all I have to do. And they just rely on that. Uh, whereas that's definitely not the case. Like, yes, this is one aspect to 
keeping um, snoopers out and preventing people from exploiting vulnerabilities inside of your PHP files, it's not it's not the only thing that you do. And so it's a caution of, yes, it's a great idea to do, but don't let it make you believe that your files are secure because of it. Right. Yeah. So the abs, abs path define at the top of a file. I was like, I've seen that lots of times. Um, and it makes complete sense when you're talking about a PHP file that is on its own executable. So like, like if you just access that file directly, it would actually execute some code. Um, but I don't, like when it's just a class file. So the PHP file just has a class in it. And the only thing that would happen when you access uh, access that file directly would be that the class loads into memory. Where's the vulnerability there? I, I must am well, I missing something? I think I think it uh, it applies to to big projects um, that end up having a lot of different files. Uh, I mean, maybe we're talking of ten, maybe we're talking dozens, maybe hundreds of files. And I do it. I do it as just a generic. This is part of our process. We put in every single file. Because when your project gets large enough, you end up doing things in a lot of different ways. So for example, there are classes that get instantiated automatically when that file is loaded because there is an instantiation at the bottom of the file outside of the class itself. And so if you were to load that file, the class would be instantiated. Um, that's not something we always do, but there are definitely cases where we do. Um, there's other times when a file it, uh, has... Um, request parsing directly inside of it that does not make doesn't have any reliance on say the WordPress plugins API and so if you were to access that file directly those requ that request parsing might fire um, I think it's just as as projects evolve and as they grow you're going to have tons of different ways that you do it and so are the majority of files going to be susceptible to direct access probably not um, and hopefully they're not honestly I think um, Theoretically, there should be very, very few files that are ever susceptible. Um, but it's just one more of those, like make it, if it's a standard within your process, that rare case when it does happen is less likely to happen. Right. Uh, so another kind of thing that's related here is, is the, the fact that we, that we have to even have these files in in a web accessible directory, right? Because so if you if you work with something like Laravel, like Laravel's app structure, it has like a public folder and like all of your classes and everything are outside of a public folder, right? They're like the classes are not accessible at all by the web server. Like when you when you configure your web server, you make that public folder uh, accessible and that's it. This is kind of like a um, a remnant of the kind of shared web hosting architecture <laughs> where like you only had a, you had a public HTML folder and that's it. Like you had to dump everything in there when, you know, when you were hosting your site, that's how WordPress is set up. Right. Cause that's what that used to be like the only, the only option for most web hosting. Um, but ideally uh, your app would have, you know, your class files completely not accessible from the web. So, yeah, so this is, again, I guess this is like another, as a kind of a last resort, like security measure to add that absolute path defined at the it's, top it's of the a, It's a very, very low level 
security measure. Yeah. Let's keep the, be clear on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I guess I guess there's probably ways also that you could, um, from the web server uh, level, protect like whole directories of PHP files from direct access. Oh, for sure. I was actually um, at WordCamp Kansas City. There was a security presentation there, and one of the examples that he gave was was using your HD access file if you're on Apache to disallow any access to PHP files directly inside of all of WP content. And that for that use case was it was basically saying, look, uh, something like TimThumb back when that big vulnerability happened a few years ago, disallowing access to that file is a preventative measure against that kind of vulnerability. And so if you have a lot of plugins on your site, you don't you have code from all sorts of different developers, everybody has different ways that they do things, you can just say blanket across the board, nobody can access PHP files. Now you have to be careful with it because you might be there's there's times when accessing a PHP file directly might actually be very useful and very well needed, but it was an example. Yeah, yeah, you would have to be very careful doing a blanket like that would definitely have impacts. So, for example, you have to you'd have to exclude admin ajax.php from that because that one is directly accessed. Yep, um, that's a great point. And then there's all kinds of plugins that directly access PHP files too, I'm sure of it. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, it, it would be, to, to just do it across the board, wouldn't recommend, but if, but you know, there's certain, there's definitely certain files in WordPress core that you could definitely say like, hey, like all these files don't allow direct access to these. Um, so, you know, you can do, you can definitely do something from the, the web server level. All right. All right. Josh, thank you for the questions. And anybody else, if you have questions you'd like to submit, you can go to the website, applyfilters.fm, and there's a submission page there. You can also ping us on Twitter, email us directly, however you want to get in touch with us. Uh, we would love to hear your questions, and I'm sure we'll get to more in the following episodes. All right. Thanks, everybody. Cheers.